If you're new with us, uh, we're looking at four psalms uh, over the four Sundays of Advent, psalms that speak of the anointed king that point uh, ahead to uh, the, the ultimate king, Jesus. And in fact, this week we have two psalms uh, that we're looking at, so we're actually looking at five over Advent. This is a two-for-one deal you've stumbled into today. As we look at Psalm 20 and 21, you've heard of... Uh, uh, Black Friday and Cyber Monday. This is two Psalm Sunday that uh, you, you get to be a part of. So let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we look at this wonderful um, set of Psalms. Father, we thank you for your word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's important for us to always be mindful of that. And we pray that you would now speak through that which you have spoken and change us from one degree of glory to another. In Jesus' good name, amen. The calm before the storm. I don't know if you've ever had one of those experiences before. A moment of peace prior to a chaotic time. Maybe the day before a major surgery. Maybe the day before a major exam. Maybe the day before a big game. Maybe the day before all of your crazy cousin Eddie's show up at your house for a Christmas dinner. Or maybe literally the day before a, an actual storm, a hurricane, a very eerie time that that is. How do you prepare for these moments? People often do crazy things. Maybe they, they pull an all-nighter before the big exam. Before the big storm, it seems that everyone wants to get milk and bread. In sports, it's an endless list of things that guys do from their nutrition to their sleep to all of their superstitions. Mavericks guard Jason Terry used to sleep in his opponent's basketball shorts the night before a game. Brian Erlocker, the football player, used to eat two Girl Scout cookies, just two, the night before a big game. Well, Psalm 20 shows us how to prepare for the day of battle, how to prepare for the day of trouble. It seems to have been written on the eve of a battle. It's a prayer for the king to be successful when he goes off to war. The people were tempted to look to military power instead of to their God. And so the psalm calls everyone to trust in God for this day of battle, for this day of, of trouble. There's a, a beautiful illustration of this. If you want to go back and read it later in your own time, in 2 Chronicles 20. There's a story of a guy named Jehoshaphat, the king. And there is a group of allied forces that's coming up against Jehoshaphat. And he rallies the, uh, the people together, calls for a serious prayer, and in that prayer, he, he says a wonderful thing. He says to God, we are powerless and we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And then there's a, a, a Levite who stands up and basically declares, you don't have to worry about tomorrow's battle because the battle is the Lord's and the people are victorious in that battle. And likewise, we can be tempted to trust in many things in a day of trouble. We may be tempted to look first to our family or to our friends or to money, or to doctors, or to programs, or human wisdom, or our own talent. And all of these have a place, to be sure, in our lives. But it is simply a word to say we must trust in God above all things when the day of trouble, the day of battle, comes. Psalm 21 is a companion to Psalm 20, and there's no doubt why it's placed immediately after Psalm 20. Because what's happening is, in Psalm 20, they're praying for the king to be successful. And in Psalm 21, they're thanking God that he was. You see a beautiful parallel in uh, chapter 20, verse uh, 4. May he grant you, that is the king, your heart's desire. And then in 21, verse 2, 
you have given him his heart's desire. And so it is a, it is a, a call to, to seek the Lord in the battle, to give him praise when he gives us victory afterward. To see ultimately that our battles belong to the Lord. And how many of you know we will have many battles in this life? Many, many battles. And verses like chapter 20, verse 7 are important for us. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of our God. We're in 21, verse 7. The king trusts in the Lord. It has been said before that everyone you see is dealing with a battle that you're unaware of, that you don't know about. And I think that's true. Sometimes you think when you come to a church service, uh, everybody's sort of got their act together but me. Might I remind you that everybody here is dealing with some kind of battle. Uh, you know, this was brought home to me a couple of years ago. I was in a meeting with a, a number of, of well-known kind of pastors and leaders, and I felt a little bit out of place in this room. And um, I only knew them from like their books or their sermons. And when we had prayer request time, I was amazed that they actually have trouble in their life too. <laughs> that they were talking about uh, parenting struggles and health struggles and conflict and all of these things that you, you don't observe simply by watching one of them uh, preach a sermon. Everyone is dealing with something that you don't know about. And the question is, what do we do in these battles? And these, these psalms point us in the right direction. And they ultimately point us to the direction of Jesus Christ and remind us of the importance of being united with Christ. Just as these people were united with their king, as the king went, so they went. Their well-being was tied up with his well-being. And so we who are with Christ are bound up with him. And his victory is our victory. Right? His joy is our joy. And so these psalms point us to the ultimate David. Jesus Christ. So let's look at it here in, uh, the, in these, uh, with these two headings. First of all, praying before battle, chapter 20, and then chapter 21, rejoicing after victory, praying before battle. Verses 1 to 5, you see that the people are praying for someone. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. So who is the you? Well, this is uh, a person. In Hebrew, this is the singular you. There is a plural you. Our plural you in the south is y'all. And they, they have their own Hebrew version of that. But this is the singular you. And we, we notice in verse 6 that it refers to the anointed, that they're praying for the king. And the I in verse 6, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed, seems to be some leader in a royal worship service, maybe a priest or a Levite, conducting this moment. So you've got the people gathered together for sort of this royal worship service on the eve of battle. And they're praying for their king, who would then go ahead and offer some sacrifices and take part in this ceremony. And so they ask for the Lord to, to uh, answer uh, the king in the day of trouble and that the name of the God of Jacob would protect him. You see the word name pop up a couple of times in these chapters. This refers to the character of God, may the God who is trustworthy, the God of Jacob, a reference to the covenant-keeping God, the God who brought his people out of Israel, out of bondage to, to Egypt, brought them into the promised land, who's made good on all of his promises. May the God of Jacob protect you. And then they ask, may he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion, a place where God chose to make his presence known, where the temple would be built, where the ark that symbolized his presence was they're asking for divine help for the king. They know that he cannot win this battle uh, in and of, him, of his own uh, 
uh, strength. He needs divine assistance. He needs support from Zion. And we too, in all of our battles, need divine help. And then they mention the king's sacrifices in verse 3. May he remember all of your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. So you can imagine this king about to go off to battle, and he's making these sacrifices where, which were symbols of, of devotion to God, of, of honor to God, of submission to God. And they say, may you receive his sacrifices. And all that this king would do would just be a, a little shadow of an ultimate sacrifice that our king would make who would offer up his own life for our spiritual well-being. At the sacrifice of Jesus' own body, we are, uh, he made atonement for our sin, and we rejoice in that salvation today that Jesus has given us. As the rapper KB says, life ain't been the same since death died. Won it by a landslide. That's what Jesus did. Verse 4, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all of your plans. They say to, to God, would you honor the king's plans and desires, assuming that uh, these desires are good and holy. And we have a praying king named Jesus who's interceding for us right now. And one of the things that Jesus prayed for in John 17 is quite remarkable when he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. That's what Jesus prayed for us, that we would be with him and see his glory. David had desires. David had prayers, our king had desires. He had prayers, and we're included in his desires. Seeing his glory was one of his desires, and Jesus' prayers will be answered. Verse 5, they conclude their petitions by saying, May we shout for joy over your salvation, and in the name of our God set up banners. May the Lord fulfill all of your petitions. They long to shout in triumph over their king's victory. And we today enjoy the victory of Jesus Christ and we shout for joy over his salvation. His victory over death is our victory. In his name, we set up our banners. As one translation puts it, we will fly our flags in the name of God. That's the flag we fly, don't we fly the Jesus flag, right? He is the one who's given us the victory. That's where our hope is. That's where our assurance lies. There's a beautiful story in uh, Exodus 17 where Moses is up against the Amalekites. And if he keeps his arms up, Joshua is winning the battle. And as you know, Aaron has to keep his arms up. And they win the battle. And it says in Exodus 17, 15, Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. They say this is, the king may be great. David may be skilled. But what we really need is God for you to come through in victory. Finally, they summarize their plea, may the Lord fulfill all of your petitions. And as we said, Jesus' petitions will be answered. Prayers like, I want them to see my glory and be with me, will be answered. And we don't pray for Jesus to win a battle like David was facing. In fact, he already won the battle at the cross. We pray on the basis of that victory today. And we pray for another victory that's coming. As we pray, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And that prayer eventually will be answered. Well, then the congregation makes these statements of confidence. In verse 6, as I mentioned, probably some uh, leader, a priest, or a Levite says, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with his saving might at his right hand. You see the emphasis on God's power throughout these psalms. 
his, his saving might, his right hand. And the covenant-keeping God would give victory to his anointed. This word anointed was first applied to Saul, and then secondly to David, and it's the word we get the word Messiah from. And we know, as we think about the resurrection, that the Lord saved his anointed. As we look at Easter, we recognize that the Father did not abandon the Son in Sheol, but raised him from the dead. Christmas is good news, because Easter really happened. Right? If Easter didn't really happen, then we might as well call the whole thing off. But because Easter really did happen, Jesus really did step out into the sunlight as the vindicated and victorious Son of God. Because that's true, that Christmas is good news. Amen? They express their confidence in verse 7 in a very beautiful way, a poetic way. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some, referring to their enemies, those who bow down to false idols, they may trust in many things. They may trust in their weaponry. Chariots and horses at the time represented the most powerful resources that were available. And we know in in warfare that equipment matters, that you need weapons and, uh, 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 you know, planes and all of those sorts of things. In sports, you've got to have good equipment. My, my dad, even though I grew up very blue collar, would always insist that I had the best equipment. I was always so grateful uh, for that. Several years ago, Kimberly and I were, took up bike riding for a week. And um, <laughs> <laughs> my, my brother-in-law had given me a, a bicycle. It was a very expensive bicycle, uh, very light. And uh, we started, I started riding and I decided to, Kimberly needed a bike. And so I went to Walmart <laughs> and I got Kimberly one for $70. Uh, and we would ride on the levees in New Orleans. And uh, I was in this really high-tech bike and she's on a little Huffy from uh, Walmart. <laughs> and I'm like, why can't you keep up? Like, what, what's wrong with you? And then we switched bikes and then and she started mocking me, you know. <laughs> equipment really matters, but you know what the psalmist says? There's something you need more than good equipment. You need God. In fact, the enemies found out that their chariots and horses were nothing up against Yahweh, which is why Psalm 46 says it like this. He, God, makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear, and he burns the chariots with fire. Human resources ultimately cannot be relied upon. You even look at modern war. Sometimes things like the weather will prevent machinery from working properly. You need something other than human resources. And that's what the nations were looking to. In fact, some in Egypt believed that uh, Pharaoh's chariot was divine. They would worship the chariot. They would even worship parts of the chariot. You imagine like worshiping a carburetor or something like that. Sounds nonsensical to us. And, there, and, and God's people were also told not to go back to Egypt to get horses. The kings were instructed that in Deuteronomy chapter 17 because they were to fight a different way. They were to fight by relying upon God. You remember when David fought Goliath, even before he threw a rock, he says to Goliath, you come at me with sword and with spear and javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. You may have a sword, you may have a javelin, you might be 12 feet high, but I've got the Lord of ancient armies all around me. So that leads us to an important question, right, this morning. Who are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? Parents, what are you trusting in? Students, what are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in? Pastors, who are you trusting in? 
Some trust in horses and chariots. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Verse 8, because they do, they know that their enemies will not be able to stand. And they make a concluding plea, God, please save the king. Because again, in his salvation is their salvation. Don't let him taste death. May he answer us when we call. So before we look at chapter 21, let me just gather up some points of application that we've already mentioned. Let's realize that our welfare is tied up to the victory of Jesus Christ. That's good news today. That our salvation is not based upon our performance, but his performance. The king was successful. Our king won, and he will win. Right? The right man, as Luther said, is on our side. And let's also not forget, like right now, we're in a battle. That we have a real enemy, the devil. John tells us the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We have enemies of the flesh in the world, and our enemies never take a day off. Satan doesn't take Christmas break. He is at work. He is active. Next, let's remember in the battle to trust in our God, to look to our God, to trust in his character. And let's remember that God answers prayer. Notice how the the psalm starts in verse 20. May he answer you in verse 9. At the end of the psalm, may he answer us. And they know the Lord does answer. The Lord hears prayers of his people because God is the living God. We're not praying to dead idols. We're praying to the living God. We don't have to experience the frustration of that old hip-hop song, Mr. Telephone Man by New Edition. There's something wrong with my line. When I dial my baby's number, I get a click every time. Mr. (laughs) Telephone Man. Uh, We don't have to experience that. Our God does hear us. There's no click on the other end. That Jesus is interceding for us right now. And this leads us to Psalm 21, which reminds us that the Lord does answer prayer. As we think about rejoicing after the victory, the psalm begins with the king's joy in the first six verses. David is said to rejoice in the strength of the Lord and in his salvation. He greatly exults in his God. And the people's joy is wrapped up again in the king's joy. And our greatest joy is bound up in the victory that Jesus has achieved for us. That true and lasting joy doesn't come from peaceful circumstances, but from a perfect Savior. As he rejoices, we rejoice. And this victory we see in verse 2 was the result of God giving him his heart's desire and granting his petitions. So the king, no doubt, had consulted before battle with others in wisdom. He had made plans. He sought to execute those plans. But ultimately, it was the Lord who gave him success in all of that. And so after battle, verse 3, the Lord welcomed him back and bestowed blessing on him. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. David takes off the war helmet and he puts on a crown of glory, which is but a shadow of the glory of Jesus Christ. Psalm 24 says, who is this king of glory? Open up the doors and let the king of glory come in. His battle's over and he is victorious. He's crowned with glory forevermore. Verse 4, the king had prayed for length of days and it says in verse 4 that God gave it to him. He gave him length of days forever and ever. His life wasn't taken in battle, but the king was spared. And so they praise God. And we today praise God that Christ died once, but will never die again. 
He's been given length of days forever, and all who are in him also have eternal life. These victories resulted, verse 5, in, the, in glory and splendor and majesty. And again, just pale shadows of, of I don't know if that goes together, a shadow of, of, of the glory that Jesus uh, would receive. And then I love verse 6, the kingly honor that the king would receive ultimately led to his joy. For you make him most blessed forever, you make him glad with the joy of your presence. The king's greatest joy was in the presence of God. And our greatest joy is also in the, in the presence of God. I was reading a sermon yesterday, yesterday by Charles Spurgeon on this one verse. You know, Spurgeon would just preach on a verse and go for days. And he, he talked about how Christians often think about Jesus as the man of sorrows, like in Psalm 53, who was crucified for us. And it's good and right for us to think about the man of sorrows but he calls Jesus on this verse right here, the man of joy. And it's also good for us to think about the joy of Jesus Christ. As we reminded in Hebrews that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. That he takes delight in the Father. He takes delight in his people. And our greatest joy is bound up with Jesus Christ. As we're drawn into this beautiful, loving relationship with our Father, Jesus has given it to us. We've been called into joy. And that's why if you're not a Christian, like you may think the message is something like to become a Christian, I have to give up joy. But the reality is becoming a Christian means you've actually found it. You finally found it. Because sin and folly only gives you momentary pleasure. It doesn't give you deep, durable delight. Only Jesus can do that. And that's what he expresses here in this verse. And then he expresses something of the king's trust in verse 7. This is what makes the difference in the king. We're back on this emphasis of trust in God. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Steadfast love. It's that beautiful Hebrew word, chesed. The faithful love of God. The loyal love of God. The never-ending, never-failing love of the Most High. Because that's a reality, he says, the king shall not be moved. And this is where we go as well. When everything around us seemed to be moving, everything around us might be crumbling, but the steadfast love of our God is that which is unshakable. Notice in verses 8 to 12, as we think about his future victories, this king, the, uh, the tense shifts to the future as they're looking ahead to the many battles that David and his successors would, would uh, encounter. And this is another example of how the language in the psalm is exaggerated. In other words, David cannot contain all of this himself. The, the, the banks spill over. Uh, and it has to be pointing to someone else as the language is so extensive. It's very much like Psalm 72, which we looked at a few advents ago. And here, there's a, there are these various flashes of, of victory that is going to be so dominant and so... Uh, international and so uh, massive uh, that you wonder where it will reach its full fulfillment. And I believe that will be when Christ returns again in all of his power and all of his glory. Your hand will find out all of your enemies and one day Jesus will put all of his enemies under his feet. Not one will get away. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. Language that appears in places like Revelation, 2 Thessalonians 1, speaking of the wrath of the Lamb. 
You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath. The Lord has a history of swallowing up things. It says in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus swallowed up death forever. Our great enemy of death. Fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, which is what our enemies continue to do. We read in Ephesians 6 that the devil has many schemes, many ways of attacking God's children, but eventually Jesus will have the last word as he crushes Satan once and for all. Verse 22, you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. That is, they will retreat in fear. It's a picture of absolute domination, that there is no enemy that will ever come against the Lord Jesus Christ, that will prevail. He is the mighty warrior, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And all of these little victories that we see in the Old Testament are but hints of the great victory that our Lord Jesus Christ, David's greatest son, will accomplish. And so as we think about the battle that we're in today, we know from places like Revelation 12, verse 12, that the devil is raging John says, because he knows his days are short. Satan's work, his temptation, the battle we face with him, all of the many schemes that we encounter weekly, daily, his days are short. They're limited. One day, it will all be over. 2 Thessalonians 1 tells us this beautiful picture, and also a terrifying picture, of that Jesus will come back with great wrath, And some will experience suffering and torment, but his saints will marvel at him. He's coming to be marveled at. And those who are ready for him to come will marvel at him. So how do you prepare for his coming? That's where I would like to end today as we think about this look into the future. Let me give you just four pieces of instruction that the New Testament gives us. One, we should prepare for his coming with repentance. When Paul's at Mars Hill, he closes his sermon by telling those, the philosophers who were there, that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. That that day is coming. So, Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3 that the Lord is merciful, giving people time to repent before Christ comes again. Aren't you glad that he gave you time to repent? And so it's his kindness right now that he hasn't appeared again to you. Use that time properly by repenting and trusting in Jesus as your Savior. Then you won't have to dread his coming. You can welcome his coming. Secondly, we prepare by pursuing holiness. Peter tells us this. What sort of people ought you to be? People who live lives of holiness and godliness. This is how we prepare for Advent, the second Advent. We also should pursue peace in light of the second coming. Peter says that also in 2 Peter 3, 14. To be diligent, to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And finally, and we know this one, this is what causes us to sing, we prepare with hope. Titus tells us we are looking for the blessed hope as we think about Jesus Christ coming. This is what keeps us from despair This is what inspires perseverance and endurance through trials and affliction. One day, knowing that all wars will cease, we will be at peace. There will be no more suffering and no more funerals, no more illness, no more conflict. 
Micah tells us that we will put down our swords and we'll turn them into farming tools. That everyone will sit under his own fig tree. That's not just in Hamilton, for those of you who watch Hamilton. That's actually in the Bible first, in Micah chapter 4. A beautiful picture of a new creation that's coming. And that's what fills us with hope today. As the hymn says, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. Well, the psalm ends with the strength of the Lord in verse 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Notice that we praise his power. We praise his strength. You come in here weary today, good news. We have a strong God. You come in here weary today, as I do, you come to a God who's mighty in power. <laughs> when you are weak and weary and your cheese keeps falling off your cracker, you, you recognize that the Lord is our strength. The Lord is our power. And this is how we take courage. This is how when you receive, you know, sadness upon sadness and grief upon grief, and you wonder, will it ever end? The good news, God has power to see you through it, and one day it'll all be over. Amen. I've always liked the analogy of the already and not yet, of Jesus' coming and then his second coming to World War II, when the forces took Normandy. They called that D-Day because it was essentially over after D-Day, but the war wasn't fully over. There were still a lot of other little battles that had to take place before they could have V-Day, total victory. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus were, was D-Day. The battle is over. We have some light skirmishes until Jesus comes again and we experience V-Day. And it's wonderful to have such a future, isn't it? And I pray that it would fill you with hope, church. It would strengthen you in your present battle, knowing that our King is victorious, our King is with us, and he is for us. Our well-being is tied up with his well-being, and Jesus is doing just fine. Praise be to God. Father, we thank you for your word today, for the encouragement in life that it brings our weary souls. And we thank you that the victory is won in Jesus Christ, and the ultimate victory will be won when he comes again in power and glory, and we will be with him forever, apart from all suffering and trial and drama. And we long for that. We pray as the church has prayed for 2,000 years plus, Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And until we see you, I pray that you would keep us faithful, keep us humble, keep us always relying upon your strength and your power and not upon our own. We would not look to horses and chariots, but to the name of the Lord our God. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen.